You describe yourself as a military brat who moved every two years growing up. Tell me about that a little bit. Where are these places that you were growing up when you were a kid? We went all over the place from uh, the Northeast in the United States, uh, New Hampshire specifically, uh, all the way up to Alaska for a few years, down to Texas, then over to Europe, uh, Northern Italy for a couple of years, then Michigan, back to Texas. Um, so yeah, it was, we got around, I'm really, <laughs> it was moving every couple of years too. So, you know, as a kid, uh, I think some kids don't like that and they, you know, they are pretty vocal about it, but I liked it. I liked being able to see a bunch of different places and I was kind of a shy kid anyway. So it's not like I was leaving, you know, boatloads of, of friends behind. And that's um, not I, revisionist I history. You, even as a kid, because I can't think of too many kids who get excited about having to move away from friends and leave places. I feel like a lot of parents say, oh, well, we're going to move, but we have to wait until little Johnny gets out of school because we don't want to disrupt him. Even as a kid, you were on board with going to Alaska or to Italy from wherever you were coming from. I think it's because I didn't know any better. Mm. I, since, you know, the, day I was born, I was growing up in a family that moved. Hmm. And I think it would be different if you were some kid who was born somewhere and at age 14, your parents said, Hey, we're going to move you across the country or around the world. I think you'd freak out. But by the time I was in, you know, third grade, I was living in my fourth place. So as you're growing up in all these places, what are the most formative pieces of pop culture for you? And, and are there different things that you picked up in different places? Cause you are in such different places, such a kind of diverse roster of places to grow up. I'll tell you what stands out for me. That's a great question. And I'll tell you what stands out the most is the, the two years living in, in Italy, because I was an American kid living and we didn't live on a, a military base. We lived in town. And you're how old at this point? Third and fourth grade, which okay. are pretty you know, formative years anyway. Sure. And this is obviously pre-internet, pre-everything like that. So there was no TV for us to watch because I didn't speak the language. So suddenly I have two years with really no pop culture of any kind. There's no TV to watch. Um, we saw a movie at the Air Force Base every Friday night. Uh, but other than that, uh, it was the library. And I've, I've always looked back on those two years of how formative those were for me with books. Because when you don't have movies or television or your phone or YouTube or anything like that, that's what kids fell back on. Outside playing and reading. Both comic books and books. So what were the most significant books of your early life, whether that's Italy or any of these other places when you're growing up? Uh, for sure, in that era of third and fourth grade, uh, it was Hardy Boys books. That, I think, through fifth or sixth grade. Um, then I started stumbling across science fiction books. So I became not unlike a bunch of kids back in the day sci-fi ha held a lot of you know a lot of draw what uh, were the sci-fi books what were the sci-fi books when you're a kid that really that, what were the gateway drugs into science fiction for you for sure arthur c clark 
and Isaac Asimov. Those two were the biggies for me. Ben Bova a little bit, but I definitely uh, Arthur C. Clarke and, and Asimov. Those were those were my gods when I was young. Yeah. I've heard you talk about Rendezvous with Rama as a book that really inspired you or influenced you, but that one might have come a little bit later in your life. Was that around? Was that one you were reading as a young kid? It was a little bit later. It was middle school when I discovered that book. And I've often pointed to that as the engine that got me interested in becoming a writer. And not just because it was a really fast paced and very interesting story, but that uh, the ending really captivated me. I love the ending. And I've always credited that book with being what really spurred me to become a writer. And I've told people it's because of the ending. And then I have to always say, but don't read the ending first. Right. I know the way some people are. Some people are going to want to flip to the, you know, the last page. Don't do that. It's, you know, it's like ruining the sixth sense for you or something like that. So what do you love about science fiction? I think that it's not only action adventure, but it always tells an interesting human interest story. There's something about sci-fi that allows authors to tackle issues, um, personal issues, societal issues, and they can pretty much cloak them in an adventure story. But if you peel the layers away, you, you know what they're talking about. That's interesting. And I, I like the way authors in sci-fi uh, and probably to a certain extent these days in fantasy are able to talk about things that are going on around us. That's something, if you look back at the old Rod Serling TV series, uh, The Twilight Zone, he often was addressing societal issues and masquerading them as sci-fi stories. Sure. And, and, and he got credit for that, but probably not enough. Yeah, I think of Heinlein too. Uh, you know, Robert A. Heinlein uh, is somebody who was able to tell very human stories in the context of science fiction. It's almost uh, baking a file into uh, the cake and sneaking <laughs> it into the jail cell, right? It's like people don't always even know. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I see a lot of that in your own writing, whether it's the science fiction you've written or some of these other things. Now's probably a good time to circle back uh, and introduce you off the top. My guest today is best-selling author Dom Testa. The six novels that comprised his Galahad Young Adult series won all sorts of awards, including an international grand prize from Writer's Digest. His newest creation is Super Spy Eric Swan, and the fourth book in that series, Field Agent, was released in December. One of the things I love about the Swan books is that they're all more or less these self-contained adventure stories that would work on their own. But when I get into a few of these books and the bigger picture starts to emerge, there's this real character study at the heart of all of it and a lot of really big questions. So I guess my question is, are you doing that on purpose, layering these big existential ideas underneath the traditional espionage thriller, which is kind of like what we were talking about with the, the sci-fi of your youth, or did this just happen? Did this just sneak up on you as a writer like it snuck up on me as a reader? Both, actually. There was a little bit of it that appealed to me before I wrote the first book. But I think I was halfway through the first book before it really dawned on me how much more 
there was lying under the surface and there was more that I could explore. And like many writers, I wished by the time I was working on the third and fourth that I had put a, a few uh, kind of like Easter eggs back in the first book hmm. because more of this occurred to me and I've been able to explore a lot of it. But yeah, that you're right in that each book, you could read each book as a standalone. But what I like is the arc of the character evolving through the series because he has his own issues and things that he wants to address and his own curiosity. And, and set that up for us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Eric Swan, who the character is at the center of this series. He's a spy who works for a stealthy government agency known as Q2 that really nobody knows about. It's a very well-kept secret organization. But they use very high-tech science so that if Eric Swan is killed in the line of duty, he has uploaded his essence, his mind, his memories, his personality. You know, the essence of Eric Swan has been uploaded to a special hard drive. And what they do is they get another body for him and then they download him back into a new body so he can go back out and finish the job. Um, so he might be in a different shell and a different body, but he is the same person with his thoughts, his memories, his snarky, crazy personality. And there was something about that angle that really appealed to me that he can be in a different form, but he's the same guy. And what that led to was realizing that his biggest concern, his biggest fear and one of the um, like overarching concerns for him in the series is whether or not he is becoming a monster himself. He's chasing after bad guys who are, you know, that we like to label them as monsters. You know, they, they you know, want to maybe kill millions of people. And he knows his job is to take out monsters, but he's worried if he is becoming one himself. Because every time he uploads and downloads, is he losing you know, is he corrupting the files a little bit? And all of that became fascinating to me. Yeah. And it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the series. For a series about a guy who seems immortal. I mean, if you just took a step back and hearing you describe, you know, the way, the process that he goes through from body to body, it makes him sound like someone who is immortal. But mortality actually turns out to be one of the themes of this series, right? This isn't like a a video game existence that this guy is living, he really has to reinvest his consciousness into new bodies. And that brings along with it a lot of unintended and kind of unmapped consequences, doesn't it? Well, what I like about it is it makes him really think about valuing life because for all intents and purposes, he's a paid assassin. And so his job is to take out you know, um, the villains and he, the whole question about the sanctity of life, I think in any normal spy is already an interesting case study. Their job is to kill somebody. How does that weigh on them? Right. And the fact that he can devalue life simply because of that video game 
aspect that you mentioned, you know, it's almost like hitting the reset button, you know, or you, or you level up or you power up, right? It was <laughs> Zelda. Didn't you get you know more hearts or something in the legend <laughs> of Zelda? He can do that. So that's another thing that he worries about. Am I, am I starting to lose my appreciation for the sanctity of life? So this makes it sound like the series is really heavy and it's not, but there's just enough of that heaviness going on in the background that keeps me really interested in writing it to see where he goes with it. So what are some of the other things that you've enjoyed that you think balance out this story? Because I do see the, the big picture character study arc that we're talking about and mortality and all these things that, you know, to your point could come across as heavy in a different context, but they are leavened a little bit with, um, you know, these self-contained action adventure stories. So are there other things? I mean, maybe it's obvious to ask about Ian Fleming in the Bond books. Um, Maybe that's a cliche, Uh, but are there other books, series, movies, things that informed the other side of these stories? I read some Ian Fleming. I read Robert Ludlum, uh, Frederick Forsyth, a little bit of John Le Carre. I I didn't read many of his, but enough to see that there was a lot of emphasis placed on the grittiness of spy novels, which I appreciate. It makes That's part of what makes them fun. What I thought was missing in some of them was a little bit more of the, of the human element. I mean, I, I created a character who's actually married and he has to, you, know, you think it's tough in normal life you know, as a spy, you know, trying to maintain a relationship, he's maintaining a relationship where he can come home as a different person. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to add more of that. Um, you know, James Bond famously on every case is, you know, betting down multiple women. Whereas Eric Swan, he's a happily married guy. And I know that that in a way could be risky as a writer because that goes against the trope of, well, your spy is going to be a womanizer and he's going to be, you know, uh, always living on the edge. Like, and I took that part of it out. That's one thing that I wanted to make different about this series is that the character is a little bit more of a down to earth guy who questions a lot about his own, you know, brain cells. Um, but he's happily married. And that's fun for me because I look back at Ian Fleming or, um, you know, the Jason Bourne series. Um, It's not like those writers didn't imbue their characters with a lot of this depth. But at the same time, it was always so dark and gritty that I wanted something that was a little bit lighter to balance it out. And then I also wrote them with, I think, a, a fair dash of humor also to try to balance everything so that, you know, one person described it as James Bond meets Deadpool. And I loved that description because it is the action adventure spy side of 007, but it's also the snarky fun humor of Deadpool. And if, I mean, I would have loved to have paid the person who came up with that description. I got that for free from somebody. So thank you. (laughs) You're right that uh, the the spy series as a genre does seem like it's painted painted itself into a corner a little bit with the way that it depicts these things. And and 
I don't know that we've seen over the years, despite that being such a robust genre, I don't know that we've seen a lot of stuff that bucks the trend of portraying spies in this kind of one dimensional way. One, one thing that I think about a lot is the TV show, the Americans. And mm -hmm. I think you could make an argument and maybe I'm making it right now that the Americans is maybe the single greatest piece of espionage entertainment ever created. That was six seasons. It was 75 episodes and I think you can argue that it only got better and better as it went along and part of what made it so interesting wasn't just the spy dynamics and the adventure of that show although I think that worked too but it also touched on a lot of big ideas about love and family and relationship dynamics and cultural identity and it just felt like the most believable relatable characters did you enjoy that show I cannot argue with you one bit. I loved that series. The interesting element to the relationship to me in that series was that you were pretty sure they loved each other, but in the show, they didn't seem to be sure that they loved each other. Right. Right. It was like you could watch them from the outside and say, those two are really in love. But you knew that as their assignments progressed, they were always questioning whether or not they really were in love or was this just a role that they were supposed to be playing, you know, as assigned by the Soviet Union. You will now be husband and wife and you will portray a loving American family. And I loved that angle of it oh, because there's some, there's some built in tension right there. Are we even supposed to be in love? Yeah, that's a great series. You know, and and as somebody who doesn't have children of my own, but uh, I was really moved by the storyline in that show involving their daughter, Paige. Um, and I won't spoil it for anybody who's never watched the show, but there is a real definite arc that takes place over the course of the six seasons of that show with these two parents who are really, you know, despite being... Russian spies embedded in, you know, in early 1980s America are really in a lot of ways, just two people trying to do the best they can in their relationship and to raise their kids and having to raise kids in an American culture that they, you know, ap apparently don't believe in or don't want to support. And as Paige got older and started taking on her own identity and her own personality, watching what it was like for them to have to battle against that, it was like they had dropped a really compelling character drama into the middle of a spy tv show and god i just couldn't get enough of it i all of it was so well done and and what you're describing um really are a bunch of layers yeah right? that, that show was layered because you had the 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 base layer of two as you you know described it two soviet spies embedded in america as americans and then their assignments and then their relationship with a neighbor who works for the FBI. Right. And then you've got the relationship with the children and you've got the relationship, especially with the daughter um, who, and again, we can't spoil anything, but think about this. And, and on top of all that wrapped in all of that is the mystery that their kids can't know what mom and dad do. So that was a very complex show and pulled off with remarkable writing and stellar acting in my opinion. So great show.
pivot a little bit. Uh, you've worked in radio for a long time, um, really since you were a kid, since you were a teenager. How did you wind up working in radio? I used to, like all teenagers, I would listen to the radio, but while majority of my friends were listening only to the music, I was also listening to the personalities who were on the air. And I thought it sounded, I don't know, in a way it's like an escape because I was, I was not very outgoing. I was pretty shy until I got to my last couple of years of high school when I started coming out of my shell a little bit. And so somehow I thought of that as, I don't know, almost like fantasy land. It's like a lot of very shy people get into drama and they become actors. And there was an opening at a radio station. Uh, I was still 15, I think, when I heard about it. And then right after I turned 16, I went and applied. And they were so desperate for help that they actually hired me to work on weekends. So I was was a very very high voice sounding (laughs) teenager on the radio at age 16. What was it that made you do that? What is it that drives a a shy 15-year-old into walking into a radio station and asking for a job. Did you have a, you know, a personal relationship with radio? Oh, I just, honestly, I just, I had a, a, a classic FM top 40 station that I listened to that I just thought the people on the air were heroes. They just sounded like the coolest people you could ever meet. And I was about as far from cool as you could possibly be. So maybe that was my way of just trying to, you know, get my foot in the cool door a little bit, hang out with the cool kids. And did that work? Are kids listening to you on the radio and all of a sudden uh, taking a different notice? Uh, I probably, yeah. I remember, you know, just a, a month or two into the job and getting a recall, you know, a call on the request line from somebody that I went to school with. You're saying, uh, is this Dominic from such and such school? (laughs) Yes, it is. Hi. (laughs) And I think their response was, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Like you'd broken into the studio or something? Right. Like I somehow jumped in and taken the radio station hostage or something. Yeah, it helped a little bit. I mean, yeah. It, it was just an escape. That's like, it's, like I mentioned, I think some kids get into drama. Some back in the day, I used to hear stories all the time of kids who uh, started performing magic. Like uh, S- Steve Martin, you know, famously talks about that. Uh, Johnny Carson, the old TV host talked about it. Um, God, who are some of the others that uh, um, Drew Carey got started doing magic. And I, I think, I think it's just a, Uh, It's almost like an introvert's way of dipping your toe into an extrovert lifestyle. So you could still be in a room. I'm still in a studio by myself. And yet when I crack that microphone, I know that I'm talking to a whole lot of people. What would you be doing today if you had not walked into that radio station as a teenager and asked for a job with your squeaky voice? What a question. I have. I have no idea. I mean, there were times in high school when I thought that I would love to be an architect, but you know, I don't know if Vandalay Industries is hiring. Or <laughs> you know, I suppose you still could have been a writer. I mean, you always loved writing, although I wonder if working in radio and the performative aspect of that and the kind of forcing you to flex that creative muscle all the time 
spurred you on to writing when maybe you might not have done that if you hadn't been in that field? Well, I'll tell you something that's interesting that I don't think I'd thought about until you just asked that question is that I didn't even try to get published until I was in my early 40s. And I've been writing since I was a kid and writing short stories and things of that nature. But I, I, I wonder if the radio job sucked that creative part of my life away. Oh, interesting. And I, it didn't even dawn on me to try to do anything with my writing until after I was 40 years old. And I, that maybe that's not true, but you know, the, the takes a lot of, there's no heavy lifting when you're doing a radio show, right? I'm not digging ditches. I'm not, you know, doing a construction job. It's, there's no physical demand, but the mental demand is very high, especially if you're doing a morning radio show. I do a morning show. And that is a lot of mental drain every day. And if you're in a creative, I don't know, career or hobby, lifestyle or whatever, that creativity does require a lot of your, I don't know, the part of your, you know, your hard drive, you have to devote a lot of it to that. And it's not like there's an unlimited amount to go around. So it could have been that if I hadn't gotten into radio, I would have been published much, much sooner because I would have had that creative side that wasn't being, I don't know, tapped into for the radio part of my life. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Is that, am I just talking out of my ass there? No, it makes, it makes sense to me, but I wonder too, because I know you've worked with kids a lot on their writing. And so I wonder if any of that experience on your end has informed the way that you counsel young people on their own writing, or if there's something that you've learned about kids or from kids from that work. I think the only thing that I learned for sure was that, and, and I'm not the first person to bring this up. Um, you know, Ken Robinson, the late Ken Robinson, who was just, uh, I thought, brilliant. You know, he talked a lot about how kids are born creative and they have it kind of smashed out of them by the time they get into the later years of school. That Ken and Robinson I, book, The Element, is one of my all-time favorites. And, oh, and is I'm it? sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's one of my favorite no. books. And that TED Talk um, that he gave that I think is still one of the most watched TED Talks of yep. all time about education, honestly, is something I go back and rewatch every few years just because I think it's good for me and I'm 40 years old. Agreed. Um, I hadn't seen it for a while until just about six, eight months ago. I rewatched it. Um, but I agree with him. I, th I think children are creative little creatures. And as they go through the, you know, the grind of being prepared for adult life, it is it's almost like it's like a, it's wrung out of them, like a wet rag, you know, just they, the creativity is wrung out of them for the most part. A few manage to escape adolescence with still enough. And the good part is, is that today it's so much easier as a creative person to get your work out there, whether you're writing or painting or doing music or, you know, look at Etsy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, creative people are, are able to sell their, their work. Um, you can be self-published today where I was, 
easily in the first wave of independent publishing. I, I hear people today talk about, yeah, I was uh, I was uh, one of the first people to be self-published. I put my book out in 2014, right at the start. And I'm thinking that wasn't the that was not the start of. First of all, self-publishing goes back hundreds of years. Um, but when you're talking about the modern era, I mean, in the early 2000s, there were some people who were who were making an attempt at independent publishing. I was one of them. And I can tell you that it is 1000 times easier today to get it done than it was back then. And been, that's good news for young people. You've been on both sides of that because your Galahad series, uh, which is a young adult science fiction series, um, was published by a, a major New York publisher by Tor, which is a division of Macmillan. So you've been uh, on that side of things and you've independently published a variety of other books too. Maybe this is a big question to unpack, but what are the kind of pros and cons of being on either side of that arrangement? Yeah, and the interesting thing about that Galahad series is that it was independently published first, then purchased by Tor Macmillan so that they bought the rights to it. And so I became a hybrid author. So I'm both in the traditional published world and the indie published world. Pros and cons. I could have told you what the pros and cons were really between them five, 10 years ago. These days, the 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 real pro, I guess you would, the, on that side of the ledger for traditional publishing now is maybe just the exposure. Um. I don't know. I've become quite a convert to the indie publishing world. And that is absolutely no knock on traditional publishing and especially the people that I worked with because people at Tor were fantastic. I have nothing but great things to say about them. But anymore, there's, there's not much of a reason to not do it yourself unless you're just terrified of having to wear so many hats because you now have the last word in the cover and the editing and in the the promotion, the marketing, and the sales. You have to do it all yourself. Um, the only thing with traditional publishing that I would warn people about is that, yes, you, you know, if you get picked up by one of the big, well, it used to be the big five. I think it's rapidly becoming the big four now uh, with some more consolidation. Um, unless you're one of the really big players you're not going to be getting a whole lot of promotional love. You're still going to have to promote yourself. Yeah, they'll, that's interesting. They'll publish it, but you, you have to do as much work as somebody who is an independent publisher when it comes to marketing your, your own work. They'll do some, but it's kind of like, you know, the rich getting richer kind of thing. You know, if your name is Grisham or King or, um, you know, some of the other biggies out there, Patterson, right? They're going to they're gonna throw a lot of money at marketing your stuff. And you almost think, well, they don't need it. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the famous, you know, it's, it's when you become extremely wealthy and famous that you start getting stuff for free, right? You know, it's like Bill Gates walks into a restaurant and they don't want to charge him. Um, right. So if you're a superstar author, it's great, right? Because a, a major publishing house is going to have the budget uh, to put a lot of muscle behind what you're doing and it's the rich getting richer. But if you are an unknown author, which is not to say you shouldn't, you know, tr try to sell your work to a, to a major publisher, but if you're an unknown author, you're probably going to have a lot more control, um, 
over what you're doing and maybe a lot more efficacy doing it yourself. I agree with that. And a number that can be daunting to people is the number 1 million, because we have surpassed that in the number of titles published every year, more than a million new books every year. So it almost doesn't matter if you are traditionally published or independently published, your book is going up against a million other books. And that number is growing. I don't know. It might be 2 million by now. So you hear all of the stories of the overnight sensations and the, and the people who, you know, got signed to one of the big four publishers and their book becomes a big hit and it gets made into a movie. You don't hear about the million other people that it didn't work out that way. And that's for both trad traditional publishing and indie traditional. We often just abbreviate as trad. It's a trad publisher. And either way, you're going up against a million people and you're going to hear the overnight success stories on both sides of that. Oh, this person independently published their book and within three months they had sold two million copies. That happens. What also happens are the millions of people who publish something and they never sell more than 20 copies. It takes a lot of work. I mean, it is a lot of work. And I'm not trying to talk anybody out of it. I encourage people to do it. Just know going in that you're going up against a million other books every year. Yeah. And there are resources out there to help people do it the right way, but you do have to have a platform. You do have to have a plan. You do have to have a strategy for how you're going to execute these things. It isn't just uh, transferring the brilliance of your words onto the page and then waiting for the checks to start rolling in. <laughs> right. And there are a lot of organizations that can help. I mean, wherever you may live, there will be an organization nearby that's dedicated to helping independent writers. Uh, and the online world is littered with groups and organizations, social media groups that are all geared towards helping people who want to get their work out there. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of great information that you got to be mindful of the people who are doing it just to sell you something keep your you know keep your antenna <laughs> alert, you know for that like are they are they trying to help me here are they trying to sell me a bunch of courses and a bunch of books and a bunch and and I'm not knocking those either because I have signed up for some of that stuff over the years it's very helpful you just have to be um alert to what the end game is if you can find one of these social media groups that genuinely wants to provide assistance and it's almost like camaraderie. Uh, my guest today is author and longtime radio broadcaster, Dom Testa. His book series about super spy Eric Swan has us talking uh, espionage today, also publishing and music. I have another music question for you that's kind of semi-related. There is a playlist for Eric Swan. Is that correct? <laughs> Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about it. What, what, what's the genesis for coming up with a playlist for uh, this character at the center of your books? And how do you go about picking these songs? I do want to say that if some other author has done this, kudos to them. I like to think I was the first person to think of it. <laughs> it plays into the conversation we were just having about having a platform for getting stuff out there, right? Because it's fun and it enhances the books in some way, right? You kind of put yourself in, 
you know, in Swan's shoes, so to speak, with some of the music that he listens to. But isn't it also just a great way to promote the series? Isn't this a non-traditional well, creative way of promoting the series? I guess it can be down the road. I had never planned on it that way. And it, it's another one of those things when I'm writing the books, I just never entered my mind, except that the character, Eric Swan, when he's in the car, and a lot of times he does road trips to some of his assignments, and he has a playlist that he listens to. And I mentioned some of the songs in some of the books. It's not out of the question for you to be reading one of the novels. And he describes, you know, a song by Beck or a song by OK Go. Or, and it finally dawned on me. It's like, well, God, I've got playlists. You know, I've got like Spotify playlists. What if I just created one for Swan? And I, I could call it Swan Songs. And... I do get emails from readers of the series who say they went to Spotify and they found it and they listen to it while they're driving around. And that's a hoot for me. Now I haven't used it necessarily to plug the book series. It's more of a, it's like a bonus for people who, who read the books. If they go to the, uh, the series website, you can find the link. You can download it onto your phone. One of the visions for this show is to solicit recommendations of cool things from people uh, whose opinions I respect and who I think listeners might be interested in. Give me a couple of three songs off of that Swan playlist that might be unknown to a lot of people, right? Not a big top 40 hit, but something that for someone who's looking for some new music, they can check out. Yeah, it would definitely be, most of it is from probably 1990 to 2005, I'd say where the bulk of those come from. I know one song on there that I absolutely loved is by a group called VHS Collection, which I just love the name. Um, and I wrote to that band. I even asked if, if I could license this particular song because I thought it, it, um, it almost encompassed the whole feel of the series for me. So a VHS collection is on there. It's a song called The Black. As somebody who worked at a Blockbuster video renting VHS <laughs> tapes well, when I was in high school, the, the uh, name of that band resonates with me too. Yeah. Uh, there's a Canadian artist uh, who calls himself Brad Sucks. Uh, <laughs> he does not, by the way. Uh, there's some Toad the Wet Sprocket. There's 90s rock for you. Um, the Verve Pipe, not to be confused with the Verve, Verve right. Pipe. Uh, what else is OK Go? I mentioned them. There's a band called Ringside. I don't know very much about them, but I like their music. But well, I'm take that back. Swan likes their music. Uh, anything else that I can think of? Uh, another 90s band called Imperial Drag. I think there's one or two songs on there. From that band so there's quite a few i think last time i checked there was i don't know 50 songs in that playlist i could be adding to it all the time i haven't i probably need to go back in and plug in another 10 or 20. thank you for the reminder <laughs> well and as long as we're talking about recommendations are there other things maybe specific to adventure thriller espionage since we've talked so much about your swan books today but are there other things that you know whether it's movies or books or anything else that just represent the best of those genres that uh, you would recommend people check out? I don't know. You know, the only thing that comes to mind right now, and it's not so much spy thriller, but it's, uh, it's a thriller of sorts is we just got uh, turned on to this show, a uh, streaming show called uh, the imposters. 
Have you seen that? I don't know anything about that. Oh my God. We are loving. Oh, I think what I like about it is because it's a, it's, it's a con man story, but it's got quite the twist and it has enough humor written into it that it kind of reminds me of the humor of the Swan series a little bit. So um, the imposters is something and it's been out for a few years, but it was, it was new to me. <laughs> and, and I like that uh, going back a, year, a few years. Um, I'm reading a book series right now that you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to have to look it up. Look it up. Um, because um, the author's from Spain and I'm going to screw up the pronunciation of his name. So please, God, forgive me on this. Um, it's called the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. The Cemetery of Forgotten Books, I think. Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Is that the guy uh, that wrote Shadow of the Wind? That is. Shadow of the Wind is the first book in the series. So let have me you read tell that? you. I have, and I'll tell you why I remember that I've read that. Because that book was recommended to me by a friend. And I'm not exaggerating. I think it's the best review or recommendation that anybody has ever given me for anything in terms of cleverness and succinctness and just <laughs> clarity of recommendation. Are you ready for what she said to me? She said, you need yes. to read this book. And I said, really, it's good. And she said, let me tell you something. It's so good. I feel sorry for the next book that I read. <laughs> That's Perfect. Is that not the best recommendation you've ever heard? That is perfect. That sums it up for a lot of people. I remember feeling that way about other books in the past that I, I not only did I not want it to end, but I just knew that the next thing I read was never going to live up. That's exactly what your friend is talking about. I love that. Um, yeah. So I had a buddy recommended also, uh, my buddy, Mike, who lives in San Diego, he will often shoot me a, a text message and say, here's what I've read lately. Check it out. So I found a copy of Shadow of the Wind, and now I'm further into the series, and I'm loving it. I also, for people who are into sci-fi, there was, I don't remember which streaming service it was on, but there was a series, sci-fi series called The Expanse. And that's a series of novels by James S.A. Corey. And James S.A. Corey is actually a pen name. It's two guys. They, uh, they tag team right, but they write under that one pen name. And last year, I think I read, and they're not small books. I think I read three of them last year. Very well done science fiction. And I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to, to my science fiction. Sure. And those were terrific. And I've also been getting into the, um, the Ken Follett um, Pillars of the Earth series. I say I'm getting into it. I'm just on the second one. But I mean, the first one was a thousand pages. The second one is, I'm listening to the audio book now of the second one. The audio book, get a load of this, is 45 hours. That's how, that's how long that book is. That's intimidating. <laughs> it kind of is, isn't it? That's intimidating. But at the same time, I go for walks every day. And so that is just my, when I go for my hour-long walk, I'm going to be doing another hour chunk of, of that Follett book. So... I guess those are my recommendations right now. So I'm going to recap uh, some of the things that have come up in terms of recommendations. We've talked on the TV side about uh, the TV show, The Americans, and the show, The Imposters, that you were just telling me about. Mm -hmm. um, music, VHS collection, and Beck. And uh, from a little further back, 
the uh, the obscure '90s rock band Imperial Drag are all things that you've put out there. Um, in terms of books, we've talked today about Rendezvous with Rama, about the Cemetery of Forgotten Books, uh, the Expanse, and then Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth. I don't know if there's anything important that you've called out that I've failed to to recall. <laughs> no, that's all it. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this today. Um, what's the best way for people to find you? Domtesta.com. D-O-M-T-E-S-T-A, domtesta.com. Or if you just want to go straight to the series, Eric Swan, Eric as in E-R-I-C, ericswan.com, where you can find out all about the books. Working on number five as we speak. That's all for now. Big thanks to Dom Testa, who I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, is my father. When you're launching a new interview show and you have a smart and engaging and successful author in the family, that is who you should call. So I'm really grateful that he was willing to be the guinea pig uh, with me here today. Such an interesting guy. Honestly, we could have talked for a long, long time. We often do. I'm sure he'll be back some other time. In the meantime, something to look forward to is a production of Brubaker Creative. I'm your host, Charlie Keaton. Write to the show at Dominic at charliekeaton.com. That's D-O-M-I-N-I-C at charliekeaton.com. Thanks for listening. More later. Much love.